Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone. I am Rachel Telfor. And I'm Michelle Gower. We are the hosts of a new true crime podcast. It is called Children of the Void. The Void refers to children who are missing and children who have died under mysterious and suspicious circumstances. Sometimes parents know nothing about what has happened to their child. And sometimes they seem to know more than they let on. Like Casey Anthony. And the John Benet Ramsey case. We are determined to do our part to find missing children. And the truth when the story of their disappearance doesn't hold up. Together, we will blast the shadows with light so that no more children disappear into the void. Children of the Void debuts in September. Join us so we can all make a difference. Please subscribe. Until then, I'm Rachel Telfor. And I'm Michelle Gower. You can catch Children of the Void on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey y'all, Morgan Rector here. Do you have an idea for a podcast? Furthermore, would you like to host and co-produce your own podcast? I am always looking to expand the portfolio of my company, Leader One Podcast Network. If you would like to have your own show, send me an email and we can talk about it. Aside from politics and religion, I'm open to just about any topic. If you are passionate knowledgeable and articulate I want to talk to you you can contact me by email morgansvariety at gmail.com I hope to hear from you soon hey Morgan Rector here I'm just dropping a line to say thank you to all of my patreon donors Since I'm not a Joe Rogan or Mark Maron, podcasting is more or less a starving artist gig for guys like me. Patreon donations keep me from having to take a job that would take away from my ability to generate more Human Monsters content. The website URL for Patreon is www.patreon, that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash leader O-N-E, later one. A way to make a one-time donation is to send it through PayPal at Morgan Rector, 
Rector is spelled R-E-C-T-O-R, at Hotmail.com. MorganRector331 at Hotmail.com. You don't have to give a large amount of money if it isn't possible. If a dollar a month or a dollar one time is the best you can pony up, it would be gratefully accepted. I know how hard things are for everybody during COVID. Thank you for all the support you have given the show, whether it is through financial donations or simply by listening. I am grateful for all you have given to me and the program. Enjoy the show. everybody welcome to the true crime news um this week rachel has not been feeling well uh she and so she can't join us she's not up to it um so michelle gower who's joined us in the past she is our co-host for tonight say hello michelle gower hi everyone oh you, you didn't go for that cheesy joke hello michelle i'm michelle gower no no <laughs> okay. not tonight i'm too tired Well, we're doing something a little different. Uh, Instead of doing a group of different stories, uh, there was a cause that caught my attention. Uh, I was watching Dr. Phil this week, and it's about a guy who is in prison. He's been there, I think, for 18 years. And what happened was he murdered his stepfather because he caught him sexually abusing his sisters, which happened to him when he was much younger. And... um, but in court, that was never mentioned at all. All the only information that came across to the judge and the jury was that he committed the murder. And uh, so there was nothing about the history of abuse that affected him or his sisters. Um, so we're going to go through first uh, an article that basically acts like a fact sheet and we'll go through it point by point. So um, as it goes, Christopher Bennett had a hard life. He had been in and out of foster care and had living arrangements that sometimes included living in shacks with no electricity or running water. His father was an alcoholic, and one of his four brothers died at an early age after a heart transplant. The countryside in his Augusta County, Virginia life might be idyllic, but his life was not. After divorcing from his biological father, Christopher's mother started dating Vincent McDormand, and his nightmare continued. At age eight, McDorman began molesting Christopher. Under threat of harming his mother, Christopher never spoke up, but in later years, family and school officials started seeing signs McDorman may be a child molester and reported him to police. The investigation went nowhere, and McDorman's on-again, off-again relationship with Christopher's mother continued. There there does seem to have been some, some fishy about uh, Vincent McDormand's connection to the local law enforcement in this town, because even later on when he was abusing the girls and they started telling people 
they did nothing about it. And CAS would come around and investigate and they would just touch base and say, yeah, we got a report and he'd say, oh yeah, nothing's going on. And they wouldn't even come and look at the girls. So it was, it seems to have been a matter of small town justice, I guess. That's what it sounds like, unfortunately. Yeah, sometimes this corruption goes on there. Uh, maybe it was the kind of place where it's so old school that people just assume that the father is always right. Well, and if it's from a smaller town, um, it's, it tends to be one of those families grew up there generational. You know, we don't know what kind of influence his family may have had or what kind of impact they had on the community that could potentially give him, and this is speculation, but potentially give him any immunity from any wrongdoing towards anybody. Yeah, so. it's like a, in my father's hometown, my cousin was molested by her her friend's father. And everyone believed him that he when he said he when he denied it. And because this other girl who had been molested by him was too afraid to come forward and testify against him, that the, the trial was was over and he got away with it. So these things happen in small towns. And I think you're right. People just they protect each other or these old families. They just have like they become an institution, just like how they had their own pew at the church. Uh, seems like it's they're really hard to fight against. Yeah. So, um, yeah, 10 years after the molestation began, Christopher thought he finally found a way to put McDormand in prison, not for molestation, but for bribery. On the afternoon of July 25th, 2003, McDormand offered Christopher a bribe if he would testify against his own mother in their custody battle over his three half-sisters. McDormand wrote out the check for $750 and showed it to Christopher. But before Christopher could accept or deny, McDormand changed his mind and shoved his checkbook back into his pocket. So, you know, ultimately, McDormand won that custody battle, which is was really bad news for the girls because that left him alone with them to do whatever he wanted with them. And I think he was sexually abusing them like every day. Uh, their mother was an alcoholic, so she wasn't really able to intervene. So she was out of it. So Christopher stewed for the afternoon before he came up with a plan to retrieve the check and prove to the court McDormand had tried to bribe him. There was no way he wanted his half-sisters, aged six, seven, and nine, to be forced to endure what he was sure McDormand had in store for them. He called up a friend, borrowed a seven-millimeter rifle, put on a mask and gloves, and went to the McDormand residence with the intention of breaking in and stealing the check out of his estranged stepfather's checkbook to produce in court the next day. When Christopher broke in, his worst fears were realized— he heard his six-year-old half-sister, Vicky, crying and begging McDormand to stop touching her privates, and his mind overloaded. When McDormand walked out of the bedroom, Christopher shot him. Two days later, he confessed his crimes to investigators. So as he put it, yeah, he just totally lost it, um, started working on impulse. His anger got the better of him. Um, what, he, what he described on the Dr. Phil show is that he saw – uh, McDormand, Larry McDormand, I think, no, Vincent McDormand, he was on top of his sister and he had his hand between her legs. So he saw clearly what was going on. And there had been reports in the past, like she showed her mother that her 
or privates were, were red. They were sore. And a, a school bus driver said that one day when he was on the bus with her, Vincent, that he had his hand between her legs. He was that brazen. So that's that's how dysfunctional this family situation was. And so as far as the trial goes, although Christopher explained to investigators why he did what he did, his confession stopped the investigation. Christopher was charged with capital murder, breaking and entering with a deadly weapon and robbery. As you might expect, Christopher applied for and was given a court-appointed attorney, except in the tiny town of Craigsville, Virginia, population 929, Everyone knows everyone, and finding an attorney who wasn't one of the local good old boys was all but impossible. Uh, Christopher's court-appointed attorney was quick to advise him to take a plea deal in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table. There was no investigation. His half-sisters say they were never interviewed by either the prosecution or defense. Discrepancies shown in the autopsy report were never looked into. And perhaps the most puzzling and egregious omission by Christopher's own attorney was the report of the state-appointed psychologist, which was handed over by the prosecution two weeks before he pled guilty. The report stated Christopher no longer had the mental capacity to restrain his acts and went on to say the, er the early prolonged exposure to physical and sexual abuse by McDormand resulted in factors causing the feelings towards McDormand to be vulnerable to understandable and justified escalation. Christopher was not advised of this report until two weeks after he pled guilty. According to Christopher, he would never have agreed to a plea deal had he known there was a viable defense. Instead, on December 17, 2003, Christopher Bennett pled guilty to all counts. There was no death penalty, but the sentence handed down shocked Christopher's family. 600 years for capital murder, 600 years for breaking and entering with a deadly weapon, and 600 years for robbery, a combined total of 1,800 years. I mean, it sounds, I mean, it, doesn't this almost qualify as a mistrial? It's fucking overkill. I mean, and it's completely asinine. I, the thing that irked me the most when researching this, because I didn't watch the Dr. Phil episode I was reading the articles online and you know trying to dig up stuff it's just the fact that with all the evidence that was never brought about or you know that got dismissed you know on his behalf that would have been a great defense like even now knowing now everything the fact that he's still in jail when other people who've been in his situation or similar situations have been you know exonerated or, you know, had their sentences reduced and they're released. It, it makes me wonder, like, who's pulling the strings with this one? Like, why make him such an example when his story is not the first story like this that we've heard? Oh, yeah. And I mean, and to not even introduce the whole record of all the the calls to children's aid or children's services. you Right. Call exactly. There's a mountain of evidence that just got kicked under the rug. And he had, you know, to take a plea deal, you know, like that. And then obviously they're making an example of him, you know, and I don't know if that's because it's a small town or I don't know, like with it being such a tiny place, you know, 
like I said, who's pulling the strings, who's involved, you know, who's at stake or who's at risk if he were to succeed in his case. But 1,800 years? Like, are you shitting me? Yeah, 1,800, yeah, it's uh, it's unbelievable. Um, so, And I just want to just tell everyone before we go on that there's a petition that uh, people are signing, and the, the deal is once they reach 150 signatures, they're going to submit it to the governor of Virginia because he's the only person who can overturn that that sentence and maybe free him. And demonstrations are going on. Um, so the link is uh, change.org. And let me see what the rest of it is here. Uh, yeah, so it's change.org slash uh, P slash a hero sentenced to prison for killing a child molester. Uh, if you can look it up that way, um, they have uh, there are there's uh, Facebook pages as well, and they provide the link. Facebook groups about this, the Chris Bennett story. So uh, I would urge everybody to uh, to sign that petition. So um, going on here, Christopher has now been in prison for almost 18 years. And the sisters he saved from years of continued sexual molestation and emotional torture want their brother back. By the way, their father was so twisted and malicious in this abuse. Like he even took photographs of them in the nude. He shot video. So that that's how despicable it was. And um, so one of his sisters said, Chris gave me a chance, a choice to keep going. He gave me my life back. We no longer have to wake up wondering and fear what will happen today. The only thing I have to worry about now are my kids' health and bringing Chris home. He gave up everything to protect us. He has spent his life in prison over something that could have been prevented if the system did its job. I'll be forever in debt to my brother because he gave me a chance to live my life without fear and pain. He gave me a chance to actually find love that everyone deserves. Middle sister Cassie said, and younger sister Vicky, the victim of the molestation that fateful night, agrees. Most kids growing up are afraid of the monster under their bed, but I was terrified of the monster that would drag me into this. Chris had to deal with the same monster and the same torture. No one was able to save him, but he was able to save me and my two sisters and ended up unknowingly sacrificing his life as well when he shouldn't have had to. Most heroes got a medal. My hero was thrown in prison. He saved us and has done more than enough time. So Christopher has filed appeals and even a writ of habeas corpus, and they've all been denied. Now the family is asking the governor of Virginia to, com to uh, commute his sentence. On the Facebook page, Free Christopher Bennett, the family organizes rallies, sells wristbands, and face masks with the hashtag Free Christopher Bennett and Save Our Hero printed on them. And they update, they update followers on the legal wrangling of Christopher's case. They have a petition with, an, well, at the time of this, 70,000 signatures, but actually it's closer to 145,000 signatures now. So they're getting close. I just, it just baffles me. Cause like when I would, so I was trying to do like research, not only on his specific case, but trying to compare and contrast to other cases that had a bunch of similarities to what occurred. So unfortunately, you know, killing your parents or step parents based on abuse and neglect and things like that is, it's more common than we realize. Um, 
it, I mean, to the point where they, they have it broken down as to like, you know, males and females are, you know, the circumstances regarding if they kill a father versus a mother, um, and, you know, being arrested for that and then later exonerated based on the amount of abuse and torment that the victims suffered to get to the point where obviously a normal person is not going to sit there and plot how to get their parent or step parent incarcerated. You know, yeah, that's not a healthy, obviously relationship or dynamic to have. Um, when I was doing the research, it just kind of brought me back to this one instance with, um, her name was Cheryl, I believe it was Cuccio, and it happened, I believe, in the late 80s, early 90s, but her story, she was an American woman, um, and when she was in high school, she actually, her and her boyfriend hired a guy to kill her dad for her, and all three of them got arrested because he did he did go through with it, um, but she was later l- released based on, you know, the amount of abuse and everything, because it she, I guess, it started with molestation, and then when she got old enough, her dad was, like, raping her on a regular basis. Her mom kind of turned a blind eye, you know, and then she eventually realized her younger siblings were starting to go through the same pattern she did, and that's when she tried to hire a hitman. And it kind of reminds me of Christopher's scenario where it's, like, it's one thing when it happens to you, but when you're trying to protect the rest of your family, especially the younger, more, in, you know, your kids, the kids are innocent. You know, no one wants that in their life. And I mean, I just don't understand how they couldn't see that. And you know, was, even in a small town, like families, families, family and a healthy family dynamic, like that shouldn't be something that crosses your mind. You shouldn't have to live in fear and overlook abuse and things like that, because I mean, it happens to everybody, regardless of demographic background. Like, just because you, you're a good old boy, you know, and you come from a small town doesn't mean it doesn't have its dark secrets. Oh, of like, course. It all needs to be taken seriously. And I feel like, you know, when when towns like that, I mean, they band together for better or for worse. And ultimately, someone pays the price for it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, what made it possible for him to do it for so long was that he did have a tremendous amount of power over their lives. They had a mother who was an alcoholic, so she was out of it. His his name was the only name on the deed of the house. He was the breadwinner. And so, yeah, he just had all this control. And there was nothing – the mother – I don't even think the mother was aware that the sexual abuse was going on because yeah. she was drunk. So that's – I mean, it seems like – the and, and since, uh, you know, children's services – wouldn't even go to the house to take a look at anything. They were trapped. That was, yeah. Christopher was the only person who could liberate them from that. I mean, yeah. they, they ran away several times, but they always ended up back there. I mean, I think running away when you live in the country must be a lot harder than if you live in a city, right? Because everyone I, recognizes you, you know? I would think so. And, you know, when, when you're a teenager or even like a preteen and you're running away, a lot of people aren't going to take your emotions seriously because they think you're just being dramatic at your age. Yeah. yeah and they were, they were also, know, the, little too, yeah, they were also little too. So probably thought, 
oh, she's probably wandered away from their home. We should take her back home. Whoever recognized them, right? So Right. And, you know, oh, they're just telling a sob story because their parent pissed them off. You know, it's not That's actually well. anything. But, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and Christopher had been through the same thing. And he tried to talk to Dr. Phil about the sexual abuse, but he started to kind of get choked up. It was too disturbing for him to to uh, talk about. So, yeah, well, I mean, going through counseling myself, I mean, you learn that when you experience traumatic events, you know, especially if it's something, you know, that was a huge part of your life. Anytime you talk about it, it's like it's ripping open an old wound as part of the healing process. It's the more you talk about it, you get more comfortable talking about it. But that doesn't make it easier. Yeah. You know, it's hitting deep and. You know, just between the physical and sexual abuse and just the power play, like that's such psychological torture when you know you're like emotionally caged and physically trapped because someone literally has everything in their power. You know, they have all the cards in their hand, you know, the breadwinner. Mom's obviously not there to help. So it's like you have to rely on the abuser for some things. Yeah. And it's it's just sick. It's totally sick. I hate it. And there's something about that kind of abuse, too, where the victims, another reason the victims are reluctant to speak, speak out about it is that it has a way of shaming the family, even though everyone knows one person's responsible and what happened was wrong. It was abuse. It's like it it still taints the family. It's like, oh, yeah, you know. Right. It's a total mind fuck. And it either works one of two ways. It either works in, you know, oh, the whole family shamed or, oh, you fucking destroyed your family. Yeah. Like the person doing the bad thing isn't at fault. The person who exposes it is. And then it's like either way, you're getting ostracized from family, community. It's it's not healthy. None of it is. And why is it that they couldn't get jurors and people involved in the court case from out of town to work on it who wouldn't have such an investment in the outcome for that community? Yeah, because I've I've worked on so many cases for the show where they mentioned that they had to go out of their way to get jurors who were not biased, who lived in another town, or they would move – the trial exactly. in another town because of because of media coverage and or if it was a tiny town everyone knew about it and they they were heavily biased against the defendant or something. But right. in this case, uh, this yeah he, he was protected even after he was dead. So. Yeah. And the thing that sucks too is getting a court-appointed lawyer. You know, especially if they're public, you don't hire in private. Their cases, caseloads are normally like astronomical, like normal, like private lawyers do not handle the type of caseloads public do. And for the public, I mean, unfortunately, like any other job, you're going to have people involved, not saying that this was the case, but again, speculation that maybe, you know, given the circumstances and the background of the family, the, the lawyer was just quick to point for a plea deal because it's going to take less time and energy than actually researching the background of this case that would have potentially exposed all of the nitty gritty that could have gotten him, you know, acquitted basically. So 
And I don't know how many lawyers there were in that town, but I would guess that normally they deal with the most bullshit cases imaginable. Like someone's uh, got a zoning issue or something. Well, in a town of 900 people, I mean, there's 45,000-ish where I live, and I feel like that's a small town. I could not imagine living in a town with 900 people. That would just be like... No privacy, I feel like, because everybody would know everybody, know everything. Yeah, and and again, with the whole thing with the shame, you, you'll never stop hearing about it. That right. You take it to your grave, even if you're the victim. Mm-hmm. It's that, that family, they were incestuous and all that stuff. And and as far as the lawyer goes, just he probably wasn't prepared for a case like that, where there was a murder, there was sexual abuse, you know, with it's just like how small town newspapers are reporting on, you know, the kid who climbed a tree to get a cat. You know I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> so even they can't deal with it. So th- yeah. Th- and it's it's probably a case that they that the court was eager to sweep under the rug, get rid of it, because uh, and in doing so, they obviously mishandled it in a big way. Yeah. But I mean, Definitely. I just just don't to avoid a stain on their community. Yeah, I mean, the lawyer could have gotten so much material that could have either gotten this guy exonerated or at the very least got him a reduced sentence. Right. Didn't try at all. And it, it it's sad too the aftermath of everything. You know, he's still in jail. His his sisters, you know, miss him. They're going through all this effort to try and get him out. And I even heard, I read online that one of the sisters even is in jail right now because she got into drugs as a coping mechanism for the trauma because I don't think they got the proper, you know, health. Oh, no. You know, mental health and counseling and whatever social type services that they need to be healthy, productive adults and work through their trauma and their issues. Do uh, do you know if, if all prisons provide mental health care? Is that a standard thing in the States? Oh. I would imagine it would vary by state. I mean, in theory, they should, but how effective it is, I don't know. I don't know how regular it is. I've I've unfortunately heard of instances where, you know, people get arrested and thrown in prison and they're on, you know, psychiatric specific meds. And then all of a sudden they're denied their meds. They act out, yeah, you yeah. know, and then it's even more intense of a prison experience for them because they're not getting the proper care. Well, they say, yeah, one of the rough things about being in prison is that you are surrounded by a lot of mentally ill people, like people who are truly nuts. Yeah. Well, and it's it's because they don't get, you know, like they some prisons don't care about mixing the general population with those who suffer from severe mental illness. And then there's repercussions for it. And it gives the, you know, mentally unwell community a very bad stigma because they can't help it. And it makes them seem more aggressive and dangerous than they really are. But a lot of the inmates aren't educated on how to handle people with different issues and, you know, possible developmental disabilities or ailments, you know, things like schizophrenia. I mean, and everybody, it manifests differently. So it's like a whole spectrum of unknowing. And then you're throwing it into an already aggressive population. You're not giving them the proper care, you know. They're not equipped to handle that. And then it's just full-blown craziness. Yeah, I mean, there used to be this ethical question about whether people who are mentally ill should be put in institutions. 
like 100 years ago, that was the common practice. But many of them were so poorly run, the conditions were terrible, so they stopped doing it. But then a lot of them ended up homeless or in prison, and that's not really a good solution either. No. So, you know, what What can you do, right? I mean... Well, and the thing was, too, about 100 years ago, people were institutionalizing those with disabilities and mental illness because yeah. they were getting them out of the public eye. People were not comfortable handling that kind of stuff up close and personal. Yeah, even you know? people with Down syndrome. The very much so. And it's terrible, you know, the lack of care and treatment and just the amount of neglect that these people suffered because... <laughs> The general public could not learn to, you know, live around these people and let them have their own lives and seek treatment that was appropriate for the time that did not involve like shock therapy and very inappropriate well, medical well, procedures. Well, yes, that's, that's terrible. But, yeah. you know, as far as the, you know, homelessness and mental illness and imprisonment goes, I mean, that's still a huge issue today. And it doesn't help that, especially in Ohio, a lot of our prisons are starting to become privatized where they're not run by the government. They're run by private companies. So corners get cut, you know, even more severely than when they were government run. And, you know, everyone suffers as a result. Oh, yeah, yeah. Shitty health care and all kinds of problems. Every Everything, everything. Overcrowding. You know, the COVID pandemic did not help whatsoever. It really made it scary to be a prisoner in some of these Ohio facilities because COVID was running rampant. They couldn't stop it. And especially in the early days, they didn't know how to treat it. You know, isolation and quarantine was not a possibility. So people were scared that they were going to die and never see their families again. And I'm sure Christopher's kind of dealing with the same thing where he's at. Well, you know, on he's top of feeling like he doesn't need to be there, which he doesn't. Well, he actually because uh, Dr. Phil interviewed him on the show and uh, he's actually holding up pretty well. And he's just saying, you know, they can't break me here. So that was really cool. It was a really inspiring attitude. Um, his sisters, they feel guilty about what happened. Like they keep saying, you know, every day that I think about him being there and I and I'm out here and. He did it for me. They feel bad about it, but he told them, you don't feel guilty that, you know, he's glad he did. He doesn't regret it. Yeah. So that, it sounds was, like they have a lot of survivor's guilt and. Oh, totally. You know, yeah. It's, it's so, it's so heartbreaking. And it, I just wonder when, like, I don't know if this is something the innocence project could step in with. Cause I know they normally handle cases that were, um, involving forensics and DNA evidence, but I mean, there's just, there's so much, you know, testimonial evidence and paperwork involved with this. It's like how, what needs to be done to kind of crack this case back open and give Chris a fighting chance to defend himself after all these years? Well, a lawyer uh, was one of the best defense attorneys in the States. He, he has said that that he would have a lot, of, a lot of advantages if they were to open it back up because so much evidence was not entered in. And so, I mean, it, I mean, it doesn't look good that all those appeals were denied, but hopefully if the governor decides to overturn it, that would be a huge leg up. I don't know if a governor can actually, can a governor can just take you out of prison? Can they just do that? Is that legal or is it just, does it depend on the state? 
Um, I'm going to try to Google it right now. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, that's what they said. They said he's the only person who could do it, who could override it. And I know that in a lot of states that have the death penalty, that the governor is the person who can cancel it, uh, commute it or whatever. So, All right. So I found some information here about um, a governor's pardon. So what it says is in the United States, a pardon can only be granted by an executive of the government. In the case of the federal government, that means the president of the United States. And in fact, the president's right to pardon individuals is denoted explicitly in the U.S. Constitution. However, for offenses against the state, and this applies, uh, the right of presidential pardon does not apply. In these cases, the power of pardon rests with the governor. To get a pardon in a particular state, you will generally need to receive a governor's pardon. However, in some states, the governor's wishes may not be sufficient to earn a pardon. Depending on the state, an agency like the parole board may be in charge of pardons and may decide pardons independently or in conjunction with the governor. But um, everybody involved with this campaign to get him released pretty much has implied that uh, the pardon by the governor would be enough. So I guess it's possible to get that in Virginia. So, yeah. I also did a quick little research blurb here, and it says that uh, according to a 2021 ideology report, Virginia voters are ideologically moderate, leaning conservative. So. Well, that's not bad. Yeah, not necessarily liberal, but not fully conservative. So there's there's a good median and opportunity, I feel like, for something to come of this in Christopher's benefit. Well, if you're a morally upstanding person and you know the background of the case and why he committed the murder, I don't see why you wouldn't feel like he deserves to be let out. I mean, especially after 18 years, he's almost served like a standard murder sentence. And he, I don't think he had a criminal record before he did it, um, or at least not for anything that serious. Right. And when they were, you know, before he was... Um tried and stuff like that did they ever release why he wasn't like fit like does he have any type of mental illness background or anything like that that could have impacted the outcome of the trial yeah he he had a lot of the standard symptoms that come with um well with being sexually abused the trauma i think he also i don't know if i don't quote me on this i think he may have had like head injuries or something so he definitely has a history of that kind of mental illness, nothing, not like psychotic symptoms, but uh, definitely some emotional imbalance. So I can see how seeing his own sister being sexually abused would just set him off and he'd lose it. But then again, if you didn't have the history of mental illness, wouldn't the average person react that way anyway? You know, I think it'd be for most people, right? Everyone has their breaking point. And even if it didn't start out them having mental illness, it very well could progress into that at instance. Um, I did some research on patricide, which is the murdering of a father. Um, yeah. It doesn't matter if it's biological or not. Um, and it does vary a little bit between adults and teenagers. But this is what I found. And I wanted to share both sides of it just because he was 18 at the time he murdered yeah. his stepfather. So. I mean, either or technically qualifies, but a lot of it does make sense 
that, you know, this kind of behavior and the outcome, you know, killing of a father figure, I mean, it's it's textbook. So yeah. um, it said the central conflict that drives adults to parasite or patricide is typically relationship conflict and arguments coupled with mental illness. Adults are more likely to have planned the murder in advance. Um, in adult males especially, there is a high likelihood of schizophrenia, though other mental disorders include psychotic and depressive disorders. Um, more specifically, for sons who commit patricide, they are often seen as less dependent, display schizophrenia, and the fathers were aggressive and abusive. In contrast, adolescent cases involve more often than not severe physical abuse. A child being abused sometimes overcompensates and takes matters into their own hands, either for self-protection or because they simply cannot withstand another day of the mistreatment, suggesting the crime is more likely to be spontaneous. Uh, many trial juries have been faced with evidence of prior abuse and battering that children have endured, which ultimately proves that's the motive for murder. With adolescents who commit patricide or parasite, which is either parent, it's often in their teens with no psychosis. They're motivated by long-term abuse, but the crime itself is spontaneous, and they're more likely to kill step-parents than biological parents. Oh, for sure. So. Step, step fathers or well, step parents are more likely to abuse uh, children than biological parents, but of course, <laughs> ultimately, he did it to his own children. Um, yeah, there was there's one story where one of the girls told a teacher at school, and when they called the the house, uh, their father like beat her with a belt, like left welts all over her, and I mean this guy was just evil incarnate. So. He totally deserved it. And I think I think uh, and anyone would I think most people would agree. Um, well, except his mother, his mother uh, would say that she hoped that uh, Christopher would get the death penalty. So that's one person that definitely wasn't on his side. But because uh, some parents, you just can't convince them that their kids could ever do anything wrong. Right. So, but it mean, makes you wonder if she had any other instances involving Christopher, even when he was a child, you know, was was this something that she was aware of? And or, you know, was she somehow involved and couldn't see Vincent doing wrong? I, I don't know. It's, well, it's all speculation. It so. could have been intergenerational abuse because a lot of the people who were abused grow up and, and then become abusive. Right. And she may have had. Maybe his father was the patriarch and she turned a blind eye to what he was doing. So, again, th that thing in those old communities, th these families just they let shit go on like that for generations and and it doesn't stop. And then terrible tragedies like this happen. Unfortunately, they make it part of their family's traditions. Oh, yeah. And in terms of what happened with the court. It's like since everyone knows each other so well, especially in a town with a population of less than a thousand, they were probably afraid of that, you know, the good old boys and then all their friends in the community were going to hate them if they if they convicted uh, or if them. I mean, if they, you know, acquitted uh, Christopher Bennett it was probably that factor as well. So. And, you know, what's interesting is when I was researching, I was trying to find a lot of backstory because obviously we know he's still in jail. But who was he before all this came to light? Like, you know, let's say 12 to 18. 
obviously when he was in the height of the abuse, you know, what was he like to everyone around him? Because you never hear those stories that like, oh, we always thought he was normal or he hit it really well or no, he was deranged a little bit. He was the weird kid. You know, you don't hear any of those stories or see any articles relating to his past. It's all about, boom, he got pissed at his stepdad for, you know, fucking around with him and his siblings Went to go get him thrown in jail, actually caught him in the act, and just acted on impulse and stopped it. So he was definitely troubled for a long time. I think what I heard, I think he mostly kept it to himself, never sought therapy or anything. Um, I don't know if he ever got in trouble for the law before that or not. Um, I remember, yeah, because I looked at the mugshot, and there's something about the look in his eyes where he just he seemed like, uh, he just accepted it as his fate. He wasn't fighting it. He didn't care. Um, maybe that fed into having low self-esteem as well. But it just looked like he just didn't expect much life from life anyway. So he felt like maybe he had nothing to lose. So. But if he really felt that way, why is he staying so strong in prison? I don't know. I mean, I guess he just feels like he, you know, he, Vincent doesn't deserve for him to go to prison. You know what I mean? for him to be suffering incarceration for what Vincent did. So I guess that's probably what it is. Do you Uh, think his internal strength is a way of showing Vincent that in the end he's still alive and breathing and that's a win for him? Yeah, I guess so. Um, And I think maybe he's doing it for his sisters too because he uh, doesn't want to give up on them and he cares about them. You know, it was what he was done was done out of love. Right. That's something everyone should remember as well. Right. And it shows what kind of bond that they had even all these years later that they're still very close, it sounds like, even though, you know, some of them are incarcerated. You know, yeah. they're still they're still very much family and together. And that's that says a lot to me. Yeah, it says a lot about his character. As well. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I don't know if they're able to actually visit him or not. If they do, it's probably the standard situation. No touching and all that. Right. Because um, the photos they have of him, he was just alone. But so he may, maybe he's in maximum security. I don't know for sure. But um, the uh, the girls are still having problems with the fallout of the trauma. Dr. Phil got them therapists individually because they didn't have therapy. Maybe they couldn't afford it. Um, one of them said she hasn't really been able to have relationships. She can't she can't sleep in the same bed as a man. Um, I don't know about the others, but she said it totally ruined intimacy for her. So yeah, it's been a yeah it's been something they've been suffering from for a long, long time. It's you very tragic. Yeah, totally. So everybody, I'm going to include uh, the link to that petition in the liner notes of this episode. And, uh, you know, do do, a re, do your research on it. There's a few clips from the Dr. Phil show. And uh, let's do our part to get this guy out of prison. So thanks for joining me this week. Thank Michelle, you so much for having me. May your daughter get well. Oh, hopefully. <laughs> Fingers crossed. All right. Have yourself a great night now. Thanks. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Bye.